This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. This is a great segment, Blair, uh, looking at signs that are telling each of us that we need some help when it comes to managing debt. Um, I know that you talk to people all the time, looking, helping them look for solutions to manage debts and get financially back on track. And I know there's some clear indicators that a debt problem has kind of reached that point of crisis. And you meet with people who have delayed getting professional assistance because they weren't sure of what they qualified for or where to turn to. So can we talk about that indicators that folks might recognize as to whether or not they have a problem with debt and, and, or be on the verge of having a debt problem? Yeah, for sure, Elaine. I think that's a great place to start. Um, and you know, the, the feeling of having a debt problem, you know, it can be different for everybody. Um, and there's sometimes there's triggering events. There can be things where, you know, you think you're doing just fine and then suddenly, you know, you lose a job or somebody gets sick or there's a divorce or a family breakdown. Um, so, you know, there can be a number of things that contribute. But in terms of the warning signs, uh, it's one of my challenges in my job is people suffer for so long. And sometimes people that I, I sit down with, they're ticking off, you know, seven or eight of these, these different warning signs here where, you know, one of them might, might send you know a different person in to get some advice so you know right. here's here's a bit a bit of a listing of you know things if this is you know ringing a couple of bells for you it might be a, a time for you to consider whether you're you know there is a bit of a mounting debt problem so the first one and this one is just about everybody that i see is expecting is is experiencing this is near constant or overwhelming stress about money and general finances so you know there's the old adage if you think you have a problem you probably do and that's definitely the case with debt if you find yourself that there's a lot of stress you're worrying about your money and your general finances a lot uh, that's probably indicative that there's something not going you know according to plan there um, a second big warning sign, and this one, and more and more people are starting to, to really take stock of this, is if you're only making the minimum payments required to service your debts. So anyone that listens to our show knows we've, we've got a lot of, of information uh, about how minimum payments are not structured to get you out of debt. And depending on the bank that you're with, you might be making a $200 payment, but only $10 of that is actually reducing your principal. The $190, um, you know, 1920 of what you're doing there is just going to interest and the next month it needs to get paid again. So if you're only making minimum payments on your debts, that's usually a big warning sign that you're, you're on the long-term plan, which is great for the bank, but very bad for your overall financial health. Uh, another factor to consider is, are you accumulating more debt? So uh, every month, if you were to add up your debt balances, do they actually scale up every month because you're continuing to rely on credit uh, or maybe you're starting to get into the payday loan cycle, which uh, that never ends, ends well in my experience because the costs to repay a payday loan mean that you need to get a second one or a third one or a fourth one up until, you know, 10 or 15 of them are going on at once. Uh, you know, one other one, and then maybe we, we can uh, chat about a, a couple of these, Elaine, uh, is using assets to pay down debt. So if the way that you're making your debt payments is by selling the things that you own, uh, or God forbid, tapping into your retirement funds, your RRSPs, or different things like that, uh, that's a big 
significant warning sign that, you know, something is, is, is really amiss there. And what about folks when we, because we see these advertisements all the time or hear them about um, uh, using your home or, yeah, using your home as an asset or as a way to uh, create money? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've all seen those and they make it sound so easy. If you're a homeowner, we can get you approved without a problem. Uh, and that's something that, you know, it breaks my heart when I see someone that's done that again and again. So someone who might have, you know, owned a house in Vancouver for 20 years, they should be pretty close to mortgage free. But what they've done every few years is they pulled all of the equity out using these, these types of, of processes. Uh, and then at the end of the day, they've got no equity left. And when they actually look at the root cause, the root cause was they were spending more than they earned earned each month and they were subsidizing that by drawing down the equity the most valuable asset so it the whole point of a house is that eventually it's paid off so if you're having to tap it consistently tap into the equity it's a sign that your monthly budget or, or something is really amiss there and you're not building the long-term wealth that you should be building you know anyone who's owned a house in vancouver for 20 years should not be having financial worries but i meet with people very often where they might have paid a hundred thousand dollars for the house and it's worth close to $2 million, but the mortgage is about $1.95 million on it. They've just consistently pulled out, uh, you know, a ton of the equity over time. So uh, it can it. can lead to a very bad outcome for sure. Yeah. And I know borrowing um, from anybody, but specifically friends or family to make a debt payment, I would think that that would be a big sign as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anytime where you're trying to borrow yourself out of the situation, so uh, that could be taking money from one card to pay another. It could be trying to get a consolidation loan and not to say that's a bad idea. It could be a good idea. But if that's also in concert with your missing payments and you're worried, you know, it could be an indication of a debt problem. What really challenges people from an emotional point of view is when they've enlarged that problem to not just include the banks anymore and the credit card companies, but now to include mom or dad or brother or sister or children. Children, uh, that can be really, really tough. So before you decide to resort to family resources, again, it's, it's a, good, a good time to have a conversation with a debt health professional to see, you know, is that the right way to go forward? It might be. I've seen a couple situations where, okay, for a small problem and, you know, the family has the resources, maybe that can work. But for the most part, you're just delaying the inevitable and then adding a whole other emotional component uh, to deal with your debts that wouldn't be there otherwise. Got it. What are the what are the last couple that you wanted to make sure we mentioned? I think the last two are, again, a lot of people will tick every single one that we've talked about here. They're selling yeah. off assets. They're borrowing from friends and family. They're trying to consolidate. But a couple that are pretty classic as well is, are you uncertain about how much you owe and to who? So maybe you've just stopped opening the mail or you've, you've just decided, I'm not even going to respond to anything. And when you, when you finally start to look at your financial situation, you don't know where to begin. So if you don't have a clear sense of where you're at, um, that's usually a big warning sign that your debts are probably not going to be in a good situation. Uh, And the last one almost goes without saying, but I will say it, if you're experiencing legal action, wages being seized, bank accounts being seized, or other assets being seized, uh, that's a giant red blinking light that obviously you're not meeting your obligations because your creditors are now taking judicial proceedings against you to start to recover their debts. So again, you don't need to to experience all of these or either any, even any of these to have a conversation about your debts. But if you are um, finding yourself, a couple of these are ringing some bells, you'll be doing yourself a favor by getting some information, maybe even sooner than you think you need it. 
Yeah, and I think that's where a licensed insolvency trustee like yourself comes into play, right? I mean, it, you don't have to have a specific uh, issue, or you can have lots of issues and lots of debts and need to take some action. But to, just to sit down and, and have a look through and uh, talk about it seems like a beneficial thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and one tool I, w- I would give people listening today is, you know, even if you're saying, you know, th- these warning signs don't sound there, I'm not really experiencing those, I feel like I'm okay, but you do have a little bit of a concern about your debt, are you actually going to pay it down? Uh, we call this the rule of 60 math, and it's pretty simple if you just say, what's the total amount of debt that you have, and divide it by 60. Okay, so forget about the interest for a minute here, uh, but just take the total amount of debt and divide it by 60 payments, and then take a look at that monthly payment. Is that something that you could afford to pay off over a five-year period? If dividing your debts by 60 gives you this payment that there's no way you could afford to make it, well, then you know you're not actually drawing down your balance. All you're doing is making minimum payments. Um, you're going to be as probably as far in debt five years from now as, as you would be um, you know, just continuing to do what you do. So I would suggest if you do rule of six, 60, divide your debts by 60 and see, is that a monthly payment you can afford? Um, If so, you should start making that sort of a monthly payment so that you can actually get out of debt. And why, and, and, and let's talk about the role that you can play and a licensed insolvency trustee can play. Why is it that going to see you is one of the very best first solutions? Well, a trustee is the only person that's legally empowered and endorsed by the federal government to help you restructure your debts. So essentially, anybody else that you go to, uh, whether it's your credit creditor, you know, the bank or the credit card company, if it's a credit counselor, um, you know, generally they've got a, a, a horse in the game, so to speak, because of where they're funded. So if you go to the bank, obviously the bank wants to, to get the most of their money back and they're going to give you some advice, but it's going to be relatively self-interested. If you're sitting down with a credit counselor, they're essentially operating as a collection agency. They get their payments on behalf of the bank to recover all the bank's money back. They might be able to give you an interest freeze, but at the end of the day, you might not get advice for your objectives. A trustee is an independent, unbiased professional. You know, Our job is to make sure that the legislation that exists to give Canadians a fresh start to help them get out of debt, that that's applied fairly and equitably to everybody involved. And we're licensed and regulated by the superintendent of bankruptcy. So if you were dealing with a trustee and you have concerns or questions that aren't addressed, you've got somewhere to go uh, where you don't necessarily have if you're dealing with an unregulated advisor or dealing directly with the creditor. Uh, you may be uh, out of luck if something doesn't happen the way you thought it should have happened pursuant to an agreement. And I think the key thing here is that at what you call yourself, a licensed insolvency trustee, nobody else can call themselves that unless they are that. Absolutely. It's an offense under the law um, if you refer to yourself as a trustee and you're not. So if you know you're dealing with an LIT, you know you've got someone that has, has you know, essentially a lot of uh, official weight behind what they do. Okay, so let's skip down to the idea or the question about what kind of qualifiers would someone need to have to have in order uh, to come and see you? What kind of criteria? How does that work? Yeah, and and this, I'm really happy with this answer, Elaine, because no referral is required and there's never a cost to get advice. Um, So, you know, if I think of the analogy to the healthcare situation, you need to see a specialist, well, you might be waiting, you need a referral from your GP, so on and so forth. Nothing like that. Anybody can get free debt advice in Canada from a licensed insolvency trustee. Um, And to take action on your debt, you don't need to owe hundreds of thousands of dollars or even tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, The way the legislation is written is you need to be insolvent. And what insolvent means is that you wouldn't be able to pay your debts. 
So either if you were to sell your property, it wouldn't be enough to pay off your debts. Or if you've just stopped making your payments, you're just not able to make the payments on your debts because you don't have the income or all your money might be tied up in your house, for example, um, you could be considered insolvent. So if you come to see a trustee, you're not going to pay anything uh, to get advice. You're not going to need a referral from anybody else. Uh, And as long as you owe more than $1,000, which is just about anybody these days, um, you would have access to these types of remedies. Now, nobody's filing bankruptcy owing $1,000 in debt, uh, but quite often people owe ten, fifteen, twenty thousand $20,000. They're considering a proposal or a bankruptcy to deal with the debt and just to stop the cycle that they're on. Yeah. And, it, and it's such a, oh, insidious cycle too. It can impact people in so many ways. Oh, absolutely, Elaine. It's it's all consuming the people that I see. You know, it's physical, it's emotional, it's spiritual. It can be their their family relationships, their personal relationships. And what's so energizing about my job is seeing the transition that people make when they're discharged from bankruptcy or when they paid off the proposal. Um, you know, money is just one piece of a, of an overall strategy of getting their life back on track, but it's such an important piece. And sometimes you can't get everything back on track until you've dealt with the money situations. To learn more about your, your debt options, if you fall into this category or you want some assistance or some advice and connect with a licensed insolvency trustee in a local BC office near you, visit sans-trustee.com or give them a call at 1-800-661-3030, toll free. Talking about getting out of debt, Let's talk about a debt strategy, Blair, and the idea that maybe a debt strategy can sometimes be the trap for folks. Um, I know you, you've talked about before that whether you, somebody considers your debt a, a minor nuisance or a major category or something that's growing, most Canadian consumers want to shrink their debts as fast as possible. So Blair, let's talk about mistakes people make that often keep them in debt longer and maybe some stuff on what people can do instead. Yeah, that, that's great, Elaine, to start there on some of the mistakes people make because you, you hit it right on the head. No one wants to be in debt as a permanent state. You know, it's not comfortable typically, especially if you feel like things are, are kind of running away from you. But sometimes the steps that you take to actually get yourself out of debt, um, they don't solve the problem. Sometimes they can compound into an even bigger problem. So right off the top, let's talk about a couple of things. So first is the idea of putting your assets at risk. So the mistake that people make sometimes is they say, you know, I've got certain assets and I'm mistakenly believe, oh my gosh, you know, those could be taken from me anyway if I don't pay my debt. So let me be in control. Let me cash in these assets to pay debt. And the number one blinking light that I just see, and it breaks my heart sometimes, is RRSP funds. So for any longtime listeners of our show, they would know this well, but for anyone who's just tuning in, uh, very clearly, RRSP funds are federally protected. So money that you save for your retirement, you can never be forced to cash that in to pay debts. You can never be forced to surrender any of those funds. That's yours the same as if it was a company pension plan. You know, there's a small exemption that if, you know, you put a bunch of money in and the year before you filed the bankruptcy, some of that would come out. But otherwise, any money you had sitting in an RRSP, you know, it's safe from creditors no matter what. But the challenge that people run into is they say, you know, I've got money in my RRSPs. I think it's enough to clear my debt. And they cash in the RRSPs, which first off, that's giving their creditors more access than they would ever have to those funds. But secondly, there can be some unexpected costs, especially with RRSPs. Uh, There's 
tax withdrawals that were, are going to happen. There's tax withholdings at source, and sometimes that's not even enough, and you end up with a tax bill at the end of the year. So you thought you were going to get a certain amount. You end up getting less than that amount because the taxes that are withheld, and then you end up owing the government some money at the end of the year because you didn't anticipate the higher taxes and RRSP funds. And then the last, you know, kind of triple whammy on this one here uh, is then you don't have your retirement funds. And that can be very difficult to replace depending on your age and stage in life. So if you're thinking of cashing in your assets to pay your debts, you should stop, pause, get some advice, and definitely understand that your RRSP should never be cashed in to pay debts. And it's such a logical thing for people to think, listen, I've got this money. Um, I'm going to put it towards the debt. It's the right thing to do, the smart thing to do. For me, it'll make me feel better. But often it's it's the worst thing that you can possibly do. Well, that's right. And if you if you know all the facts and you make that decision clear-eyed saying, yeah, I'm willing to, to cash in my retirement to pay a bunch of taxes just to get out of debt, okay, you've made that with all information and that's okay. But my challenge is a lot of people that I, I break the news to them saying, you know, that was federally protected. You didn't have to do that. They, you know, they, they start to tear up sometimes and, you know, I'm tra- as compassionate as I can, but I wish they had asked me the questions beforehand before they'd taken such a drastic step. And sometimes they're counseled down that road by collection agents or even bank employees that say, oh yeah, there's no protection for RRSPs, you know, you do it now or we're coming for them. So the person just wants to be in control. Uh, so definitely it's an unfortunate thing. If people take nothing else away from this, be careful about your RRSPs. Just don't cash them in. I think this is a, another good one to always remember. And it comes from a good place. People who love you and know you, who are family members or close people, want to give you a hand. And so they say, hey, you know, what can I do to help you here? Can I co-sign something for you to help you get out of debt? And again, this is a, a such a great explanation. It, it's the worst. Well, if not the worst, it's not a good thing to, to do is include others in, in your responsibility. It's highly risky. You know, it's very wrought with many different factors when you start to involve uh, where there's an emotional relationship already, whether it's a friend or a family member, and then you make it a financial relationship. Uh, there's a huge potential for that to backfire. It's something we always uh, generally uh, suggest that you avoid. So if you co-sign a debt for somebody, you know, first off, you're signing to be 100% responsible for that debt. It's not the 50-50 that you might be thinking. You're on the hook for 100% if that person that you co-signed for can't pay. Um, and you can imagine if that person's having difficulty paying, you know, they're going to feel that much more emotional distress now letting you down the cosigner as well as all the other banks and credit card companies and things like that. And potentially starting to ruin your credit, the cosigner, because if a cosigned loan starts to get delinquent, that is going to have an impact on the cosigner's credit rating. So I've never seen a situation where cosigning a loan worked out very well for an individual if they have ended up having to restructure everything altogether. What can work out really well is give that person the support that they need to get help. So help them understand there's a licensed insolvency trustee out there. Help them understand there can be a consumer proposal remedy. And if you do want to help them financially, I'll help them reduce the debt through a trustee and then help them with that reduced balance through a proposal. That's not putting you at risk at all. And they're going to get some good counseling along the way. Everything's going to be very legally regulated all above board. So it's just going to be a better outcome than just deciding, yeah, I'm going to put my name on the line to help out this person. It can often backfire and end up in a worse situation. And to take that first step, I want to mention that Sands and Associates, this is their website that you can easily access. It's sands-trustee.com. Or if you want to give them a call, they've got a 1-800 number. It's 
30-30 and set up that appointment and sit down with somebody like Blair and talk about what options you may have. I know something that lots of folks think about doing is actually turning to lenders for solutions to manage their debts. Um, what are your insights on that as an idea? Well, that's almost where everybody, that's where almost everybody starts is, you know, I've got all this high interest debt. Can I at least consolidate it together, put it together at a lower interest rate? Logically, that makes a lot of sense. But, you know, first off, it's very difficult to consolidate a whole lot of debt unless you're willing to pledge some assets, which we said earlier, just don't do that. Uh, Or unless you've got really stellar credit, uh, which a lot of folks, if they're juggling a bunch of debt, they've already maybe missed a few payments. So sometimes it's very difficult to get approved at a bank for a consolidation loan without having assets or a cosigner. And if the bank isn't going to approve you, you might be looking at some, you know, we'll call them subprime lenders or alternative lenders or folks you might see advertising on the internet sometimes. Uh, Their rates for consolidation can be exceptionally high. Um, There can be a bunch of penalties if you don't pay on time. In some cases, you're putting your car at risk to consolidate uh, a bunch of other debts. So you've just got to be very careful if you're consolidating your debt that you're getting a reasonable rate and also that you're actually able to afford that consolidation because even if you end up working with a credit counselor and they get you down to zero interest, you still got to pay off all your debts over a five-year period. Um, if it's a lot of debt, that might not be affordable. So you might be t- tying yourself to a consolidation that's just going to put you further and further into debt each month because you're starting to borrow to make that consolidation payment. So be very careful if, if, if you do consolidate with a loan that is affordable for you and meet your circumstances. Okay, so we've covered a whole bunch of things that you shouldn't do. Let's skip to the things that you should do. Uh, there's a couple of really good tips here that I, that you've given me that people may want to consider. So let's focus on the, on the do's as we, uh, we've got about four or five minutes left in the segment, Blair. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. Let's, let's talk about the positive things. So the things that you can do. And a lot of times when people feel in debt, you know, they really feel out of control. They feel like everybody else is setting the rules of the game. And it's when you start to sit down, look at your options, put some numbers together, you can start to get back that sense of control. So one of the number one things I recommend is to try a financial calculator. And there's a bunch of financial calculators you'll find online. The government of Canada actually does a great job uh, in putting together a payment calculator and a financial goals calculator. So if you go on to Canada.ca and you, you click around a little bit, but you will find, you know, I'm, I'm an individual in debt. There are financial calculators there. You can see exactly um, how long it's going to take you to pay off a credit card bill or a line of credit bill uh, or things like that. And that can help put into perspective, you know, are you making progress doing what you're doing or do you need a different strategy? Um, on our website at sans-trustee.com, we've got a very simple, we call it the debt options calculator. You put in basically, you know, here's my circumstances, here's my amount of debt, show me my options for eliminating the debt based on on my income and and how much I can afford to pay back. And in literally 20 or 30 seconds, you're going to see, okay, if you owe $20,000 of debt, if you filed a proposal, well, the proposal might be able to be filed for $7,000 or $8,000, something like that. And you can see what the monthly payments would be. So it really can make it from this, you know, um, really difficult to understand foreign concept of what is a consumer proposal to say, hey, for my $20,000 of debt, a consumer proposal is $150 a month um, over a 50-month period, something like that, just picking some, some relatively uh, strong numbers there. So definitely check out those calculators, see if there's something that jumps out to you that can help you understand if your current progress uh, is the best way for you to go, if there's some other options that might be better. I think one of the most important things that I think about when I think about your organization, Sands and Associates, and the kinds of work you do and how you do it, um, the number one idea that 
folks who are phoning you and sitting down with you, they're not alone. And you, I love the fact that you really stress that, that you're, that, which, you know, there's some compassion there and some empathy uh, from folks that are sitting down with people who are coming in the door. Well, that's exactly right, Elaine. So we know we're dealing with people, you know, not on the best days of their life when they pick up the phone or walk in the door uh, to the trustee's office or these days, you know, meet us by video conference. Um, you know, it's, it's a tough thing to, to, to live through, but uh, you definitely need to understand that debt is just a way of life for so many Canadians these days. And there's almost nobody that's going to go through their life without, you know, at least one or two, you know, serious concerns about debt at some point. They might be a new student who's just graduated wondering about their student loan. Um, they might be a single parent who's just struggling to make to make ends meet uh, and has a credit card bill that's been growing but as soon as we can get past that idea that you know I'm alone in this and nobody cares we can give the support we can give the options we can help people understand that you know in an average year in Canada it's more than a hundred thousand individuals end up formally restructuring their debt either with a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal and in BC it's often up to a thousand individuals a month uh, are filing a bankruptcy or a proposal you don't hear about it because it's a very private process and usually it's only if you really trust somebody in your life? Are you going to let them know, um, you know, yeah, I had to take some steps to restructure my debts, but more and more people are understanding, you know, the shame and the stigma. It's not always your fault that you end up in a debt situation that you can't get out of without help. And there's no shame in reaching out for that help. Um, you know, sometimes, and this is, you know, gratifying to do in the initial meeting, is just to spend a couple minutes thinking about, you know, what would your life be like if you didn't have that credit card bill every month? If you didn't have that payday lender calling you six times a day, you know, you can just imagine the mental clarity, the space that you have to actually become the person that you want to be if you're not really dragged down by the burden of debt at every hour. Yeah, and it's really important for folks to realize that only a licensed insolvency trustee is the one that's going to be able to formally work with you, either to uh, help you through a bankruptcy or get you into that consumer proposal. That's exactly right, Elaine. There's no referral that's needed. There's no upfront cost to ever meet with the trustee. You'll be able to get a meeting often the same day, sometimes even the same first phone call. You'll be sitting down with an expert to explain to you, here's all your options. Here's what Canadian law provides for you. This is all enshrined in law is to give people who've been honest but unfortunate a fair second chance to restructure their finances. So when you sit down with a trustee, it's nothing on the side of judgment. It's all inside of let's look at the information. Let's look at the situation. Let's understand, empathize, and put together a plan that's going to get you out of debt. So give them a call, 1-800-661-3030 for that consultation. Find an office near you. Check out their website at sands-trustee.com. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. You know, one thing that I learned, Blair, from doing this show with you, and, and it's because I didn't have one, uh, but the, the intricacies and the complications that come with student loans and the paying back of those student loans. Uh, I can't, uh, it was shocking to me when you first started talking about it and how not only the size of the debt, certainly, but all, like I say, the implications of, of having one and then how to pay it back. And I'm so glad that we're going to talk about that in this segment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there are some financial commentators that are saying, you know, student loan debt is the next big debt bubble. So, you know, in 2008, there were all these loans, you know, made to people with no income, no jobs, no assets. Those were the ninja loans that people thought, you know, they would never get paid back and there was a big cost to the economy. You know, some commentators have been saying, well, you know, every student loan is given to somebody with no income, no job and no assets. By definition, they're a student. Um, so it's a loan where, you know, potentially people can incur well in, in excess of their ability 
ability to pay the debt off in the future. Um, and it can be a loan that can really follow you around for you know, a significant period of time unless you take some actions to deal with it. And we know how un- uncertain the future can be at any given time. Uh, if there's going to be a job at the end of that education and your earning power, depending on, depending on when you're graduating, uh, you may or may not have something to go to. Um, so I think it's really important that we're covering this off. So can you talk about the different components of student debt uh, that you guys, that your firm, Sands and Associate, as- Associates, ends up helping people with? Yeah, you know, there's two main um, categories I would separate um, people into for when they come to us for help with student loans. Uh, you know, there's people who come to us, you know, very early on in their studies, or maybe they've just graduated, or they might even be just about to start their studies, and they're trying to consider, you know, how do I set myself up for success with a student loan? So what are the best practices uh, to make sure I'm not going to overextend? Uh, and then a second category of folks who have already graduated who are finding it tough to pay off what they've already incurred, and there are some solutions there. Now, starting with the first category in terms of how do you set yourself up for success, uh, you know, the number one thing, and this is not a surprise to anyone who listens to the show, is to make a budget. So as you go forth in your career as a student, you really need to look at all the costs you're going to be incurring uh, and validate those against the income or the loans or the part-time income you might be able to generate. So, you know, factoring in your tuition, your books, rent if you're going to be living away from home, groceries and other costs of living, and then considering if you look at that budget, how much of that can you earn back through a part-time summer job, internships, or different things like that? one really big pitfall is if you look at that budget, you figure out what you're able to, you know, to afford to earn back and what you need for a loan. If you're granted more than what you need in a loan, don't be tempted to take the excess. Um, I've met with so many clients over the years who have said, you know, I qualify for $10,000 of student loans. I really only need the 5000 but I took the extra money, you know, just to have it because it was cheap financing. And they can't point to anywhere where that extra money went, but it all needs to get paid back with interest over time. So make sure that you don't take more than you actually need. Uh, A second best practice is to make sure you're tapping all the resources that are available to you. Um, So there are a large number of scholarships, of bursaries, of awards that go unclaimed every year at just about every post-secondary institution. Um, So I went to York University, I graduated in 2002, and I remember my last three years of school, every year I could find at least $500 a bursary no one had applied for. I'd put in an application, um, and lo and behold, I had about a pretty good success rate of getting at least a $500 bursary each year. So, you know, make sure you overturn all the stones, go to your student financial aid offices uh, and take the time to submit applications for even small awards. They can all add up. Uh, You know, a last factor to think about. Oh, thank you. Uh, a last factor to think about no. <laughs> is to build a, a, post, a post-grad plan. So to really understand, you know, what are the payment dates? What are the due dates? Um, if it's a government student loan, you've got six months after graduation before you need to start making payments. But be aware that the interest starts accumulating right away. If it's a private student loan, you might not have any grace period at all. Um, so really sit down and make that plan so that you know once you're out of school, when is the financial commitments going to start for you? And I would think as you give this advice, we've, you've said it a number of times, it's better to ask for help when the first signs start to show up versus waiting until you're in a deeper hole than, than what you can foresee at that point. Exactly, Elaine. And, that, and that's a great segue to the second component of individuals that we help. So, you know, we try to help people planning so that they won't end up getting into, you know, a large uh, student debt by the end of it if it can be avoided. But if you've been sitting there, you've graduated, you're struggling with your student debt, 
there are certain options that you can consider. Um, you know, one option that people clearly aren't aware of when it comes to government debt, like a student loan, is to make a consumer proposal. And the way a consumer proposal works, like a student loan with like any other type of a debt, a credit card, income tax, or whatever, a consumer proposal is where you make an offer and you say, I can't afford to pay back 100 cents in the dollar of all of my obligations, but I can afford to pay back 30 cents in the dollar or 20 cents or 25 or something like that. All the interest is frozen at that point. All the costs of administration are included in what you can afford to pay back, whether it's the 30% or higher or lower than that. Um, but it basically gives you the ability to restructure the loan to be something that you can afford, something that's going to help you solve the problem. With a consumer proposal, there's no additional borrowing, uh, and a consumer proposal has to be completed within five years. So if you're looking at you know, the next 20 years before you'll be able to get out of debt, uh, a proposal is going to definitely shorten that type of a time frame. I would think, too, that, um, again, taking action uh, when this first starts showing up versus waiting, and you may not even think that a consumer proposal or going to see a licensed insolvency trustee is the next best step because we get so bombarded with all kinds of other information of other people to go see to help us with this, uh, and yet the uh, licensed insolvency trustee is really the only one that can really handle a student debt loan. Exactly. So, you know, there's two main options that we can help with if it's a student loan. So one is the proposal, as we've mentioned. You know, the second is filing for bankruptcy. And both of these options we should talk about. There's a bit of a waiting period after you graduated school. We'll come to that in a second. But uh, if you were to file a, a a bankruptcy with a student loan, um, the student loan gets treated just the same as every other debt as long as it's been at least seven years since you were out of school. So if you have graduated very recently, you can still come and see a trustee, a proposal or a bankruptcy still might be a good option to you if you have a bunch of sorry, of private student loans, bank-issued student loans, or a bunch of other consumer debt. But if you file a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy and it has not yet been seven years since you were a student, what happens is during the term of that bankruptcy or the proposal, you're fully protected. So if the proposal is going to be, you know, for three or four years, during that time, you can't be compelled to make any extra payments. You can't be sued. Nothing can happen to you. Nothing can be seized from you. But if the debt has not been seven years old when they start, when you started that proposal proceeding, it will survive the proceeding. So if someone went into bankruptcy and their student loan was 10000 their other debts were $40,000, they had $50,000 of debt, at the end of the bankruptcy, the $40,000 would be gone. But if that student loan was not yet seven years old, that $10,000 would still survive the bankruptcy. So an individual has to be crystal clear um, on how a student loan would get um, would get treated either in a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy. But the broader public policy objective there is that when you go to school, you don't do it with the assumption that you're going to graduate and then the next day declare a bankruptcy or do a proposal on your student loans. The government wants you to make a good faith effort, try to earn income, um, and at least try it for five to seven years before you file either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. Now, can you explain and, and, and correct me, please, as I sort of bungle my way through this question, because there's a there's a point at which if you make a payment on a student loan, then then the the amount of time starts all over again. Am I right about that or how does that work? No, it's a great question, Elaine, and that's if it was a private debt with a statute of limitations, but a student loan is typically not a private debt and there is no statute of limitations. So it's not the case, you know, you can go silent on your student loans and then after a period of time, they'll go away. Um, they won't go away. The 
the time period that matters is just when you finished your course of study. So, you know, if Got you it. finished five years ago, that's the time that matters. It doesn't matter if you've made all the payments required in five years or none of the payments. It's just when did were you last a student? So that's a great question. I'm happy we're able to clarify. It's just when were you last a student is the time that matters. So if you're a student or about to be a graduated student or you're starting to look for work and things aren't looking particularly great, getting a free debt consultation with Blair or anyone from the Sands and Associates organization is such a good idea. They give you some great options for student and government debts as well as, of course, consumer debts and business debts. Get a hold of them through their 1-800 number. It's 1-800-661-3030. Talking about credit, do's and don'ts and tips from Blair. So whether your goal is to establish a good credit history, pay off debt, or in some cases boost your credit score, there's a lot of aspects of credit history and ratings that folks just don't understand. Uh, and sometimes the things we think are right aren't the right outcome for us at the end. And that's why we've got Blair to talk about the credit mistakes not to make. That's where we're going to start. But first, Blair, can you start by giving some background information about credit scores, just in case somebody doesn't quite know what that means? Oh, certainly, Elaine. And I would say there's not a client that walks through the doors of Sands & Associates who doesn't eventually ask some very detailed questions, very good questions about their credit scores, their credit ratings. And it's something that a lot of folks are surprised to learn the facts um, and how much these ratings and scores can change in short periods of time. So just starting at the basics, there's two main credit bureaus in Canada. There's one called Equifax and another called TransUnion. And you've probably heard these names before because they often give press releases with, you know, new stats about delinquencies on debts. Um, and also, they've been subject to data breaches, so you may have heard of that in the past where some personal information has been compromised. But these are private companies. Uh, they store and share information they've collected from your Canadian creditors about how you use your credit. So each of them has a detailed record on just about every Canadian in Canada who has accessed the credit system at some time. So when you apply for or borrow funds for the first time, your credit report is created. So it's a summary of your credit history, so everything that you've done within the credit world that starts with your first transaction. And in addition to personal information like your date of birth, your address, employment history, and so on, uh, your credit report might have information such as the credit you use and facts about the account such as balances and payment habits. So what's your high balance this month? Did you pay on time? What's the history there? It's also going to reflect are there inquiries from lenders or others who've requested your credit report. So it can be an indication if someone's going all over town applying for credit six or seven times, all of those are going to show on the credit report and that can give a lender some cost before they advance funds. Uh, and there can also be some remarks in there. You can put a consumer statement yourself. Um, you know, if you've been through a bankruptcy or a proposal and want to put a statement saying here were the circumstances, um, you know, it was a car accident or something you know, outside of my control and I want everyone to know about that, um, you have the right to put that in your credit report. And then also some fraud alerts if you've been a victim of an identity theft or something along those lines. So quite a bit of information goes into your credit report. And what a lot of people are really focused on is the credit score. And this is a numerical, a three-digit number. It ranges from 300 to 900, with 300 being, uh, you know, on the very lowest possible scale, very uncreditworthy, to 900 being, you know, exceptionally creditworthy, about the highest you could get. Uh, now, it's impossible to actually know this exact number. And some people are quite surprised. They say, well, I can go online and I can pay for my credit score. Well, yes, you can, but that's not your real credit score. That's just the credit bureaus basically selling you a number that they create, but each level 
lender individually. So each bank, each credit card company, payday loan or whatever that does a credit report on your credit check, they're going to calculate their own credit score. And it's a closely guarded secret about how they actually put those numbers together. So what you pay for online of your credit score, it should be indicatively correct, but in no means is it going to be your exact credit score. People are surprised to learn that. Oh, that is interesting. I didn't realize that either. Um, I still have this question. Why do people and consumers care about their credit history or what a credit bureau or bank scores them at? Like, when does that really come into play for someone? And that's a good question, Elena. And a lot of people, I think, care far too much about their credit score at every point in their life when it's really only important at certain points when you need to borrow funds maybe for a mortgage or for a car loan. But a lot of people are focused on keeping perfect credit and sometimes at the expense of their overall financial health. financial health. But a couple things where it's really important to be aware of your credit history and credit score is you want to spot signs of identity theft. So if you're not checking your credit report at least every year, you might not have any idea that someone's opened a bunch of accounts in your name, they're running up credit. Well, you might not be held accountable for that credit. Uh, If it goes delinquent, it could be when you're ready to buy the car or get the mortgage, suddenly there's all this stuff in your credit report you had no idea about because you've been a victim of identity theft. So you want to make sure, you know, obviously all the accounts on there are yours. Um, And a lot of the time why people want to have a strong credit score is because that's what a lender is going to look at when they're ready to borrow. A lender is going to look at the credit score and the history to decide if they're going to lend you money. And if they do, what rates and terms are they going to extend to you? So someone who has a much higher credit score uh, than than lower uh, is obviously going to get better rates or get more access to credit than someone who's on the lower end of the scale because the creditor is going to think a high credit score means they've been good in the past. They're going to be good in the future and paying back all of the new borrowings. So it is important if you're going to take some action, if you're going to borrow some money, you need to pay attention to what your score is just so you know what it is going into a negotiation. Does that make sense? That's exactly right. So, you know, if you have a goal that in, you know, three years from now, I'm going to have enough money saved uh, for a down payment with a mortgage, well, then make a plan that your credit score should be peaking around that time and start taking some steps now. Uh, If you know you've just, say, graduated school, uh, you know, you're 10, 15 years off of getting into the mortgage market, you don't need to pay a whole lot of attention to your credit score. You know, yes, pay your bills on time. That's just, you know, good hygiene to do from a financial perspective. Uh, But managing your credit score down to the letter, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, You just really need to be careful you're not chasing a perfect credit score at every stage because your credit score can change dramatically in a matter of just a year or two. Literally, people can come out of bankruptcy proceedings, which is about the worst thing or toughest thing you can do to your credit, getting it essentially down closer to the 300 side. Um, And then within two to three years, they can be getting mortgages approved, credit card offers with no risk premiums, nothing like that, if they've done the right thing. So it takes about two to three years to really change your credit dramatically. But even in a year or so, you can have some significant impacts on a credit score. I know that your website has some good information about uh, credit and how to pay attention to it. And I'm just going to give folks their, the, your website again. It's sands-trustee.com. And it's really just filled with good questions and answers on all aspects of debt, including credit, if it's something you'd like to check out before you take the next step. Um, how, how you use your credit and your personal spending habits make up a bulk of your credit history. We know that. Which has the biggest impact on your credit score? 
Yeah, there's some really good best practices people should keep in mind. So, you know, first off, uh, the longer you've had an account that's open, the better this is for your score. So you might have heard the advice, okay, if you're applying for credit, go and close some other accounts because it's going to look better if you don't have a whole lot of open credit. That's just completely wrong. Um, Any history that you had with those accounts, two or three years, a great payment history, never missing a payment. Once you close that account, that history is gone. So having some old accounts that you continue to use, that can be important. And yes, you can transition to newer accounts, but I'd recommend you don't close the older ones until you've built up some good history with your newer accounts. You you can remove the limits down to something very low on the old accounts, maybe not use them very much, but you do want to keep that history present there. Uh, You know, another best practice is to treat everything as important. So every debt that you have uh, has the ability to either help you on your credit report or to hurt you. And the small bills, something like a cell phone or an Internet plan, you might, you know, neglect that thing. It's the smallest bill. I'm going to pay it every couple of months or so. I don't mind the collection calls. But it's been said that more people get denied for mortgages due to unpaid cell phone bills than for any other factor having to do with credit. So be aware that a cell phone company, they know they're not going to hire a lawyer to chase you, but they're going to be very quick to ding your credit if you're habitually missing payments. So make sure that you're treating all of the accounts as important. Uh, The last tip that I would give here is just to watch your balances. So it's very important that you keep your balances on your accounts less than 50% and sometimes even less than 30% is a good idea. So that means if your credit card limit is 5,000, try not to charge more than $2,500 on that in a month because even if you pay it off, it still shows that you went above your credit, uh, you know, above the 50% target and maybe your creditor will think, well, there could be a risk. They're using all this credit all the time. Uh, That's better than, sorry, that's worse than somebody who's only using part of their balances on a regular basis. Got it. And again, I just want to mention too, you know, we're, we give you a lot of information in these segments. Uh, check out the website for Sands & Associates. There's so much good information there. It's sands-trustee.com. And if you want to sit down with somebody and hash out your issue, just ask some really good questions in order to figure out your next step. 1-800-661-3030 for that consultation, as well as to find an office near you in British Columbia. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates helping you get out of debt. You've been listening to Dollars and Cents. See you next time. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.